Welcome to the Great Trials Podcast, where you get a behind-the-scenes look at America's greatest trials with the trial lawyers who tried them. The reason it was so important in this case is because the entire defense was that this was fabricated and it doesn't happen in the real world. So that Jessica was lying, she must have put it in reverse, and there's no way that in the real world you can actually put it in a false part. Well, the problem with that is, then why the hell do you have these documents that say that not only do you recognize that that can happen, but people can get injured and killed? Please rise, court is now in session. All right. Well, welcome to the Great Trials podcast. This is Steve Lowry along with Yvonne Godfrey. And, and Yvonne, I, I thought we were going to have a guest host today, but uh, I, I think he's backing out of that. I could still change my mind. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we could, he could switch. This one, I, I feel like, is going to go off the rails in a lot oh, yeah. of ways. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I uh, should go ahead and just let our, our listeners know that uh, – that uh, not because of COVID, not because uh, we couldn't find guests, but because, uh, you know, sometimes things change and this is a good case to talk about. But our guests today are uh, my and Yvonne's law partners, uh, Jeff Harris and Jed Manton. How are you guys doing? Let's pretend awesome. we've never talked before. I'm great. I'm actually broadcasting from my underground bunker. And uh, what's uh, unique about my bunker is I have little birds in it. That a fly around just to you know <laughs> give a little give it a little bunker ambiance. Yeah, so you, yeah. You can hear, you can hear I don't know if, birds in the background. I don't know if we're going to show our our Zoom uh, backgrounds, but but Jeff is not only wearing his COVID mask, uh, but he's also uh, got an outer space background. So looking good, Jeff. Mm-hmm. Well, you can It's hard. It's hard to uh, not socially distance when you're in outer space. <laughs> That's right. Space. Got it. See what I'm doing there. <laughs> like it. <laughs> and uh, Jed is being awfully quiet. Jed, uh, how are you doing today? I'm doing fantastic. Happy to be on the uh, Great Trial Podcast. <laughs> you've, both, you've both been guests before, <laughs> right? I can't wait That's to right. learn more about your practice. And, and of course, uh, <laughs> since you are my, my law partner, Jed, I can yell at you for not turning off your cell phone in the middle of a podcast. But uh, why don't we go ahead and silence those? Um, all right. Well, uh, I won't take the time to introduce uh, everybody to our um, to my law partners, other than that we are uh, partners in a firm called Harris Lowry Manton, uh, located in Atlanta and Savannah, uh, Georgia, and have been practicing for a while together. And um, you can look us up at hlmlawfirm.com. So the case that we're going to talk about today is a case called uh, Jessica and Kenneth Mundy versus Ford Motor Company and Legacy Ford Mercury. Um, and uh, this case involved a what we call a park to reverse or a false park case where Jessica was driving a 2004 Ford Explorer. Uh, she was an accountant for a, uh, the Department of Revenue. And so at about six o'clock at night, she stopped by the post office to drop off a package that she needed to get into the FedEx box. Uh, she put her Ford Explorer into what she thought was park, uh, talked on the phone for a couple of minutes to a friend, uh, then got out. Uh, I should say she left the vehicle running. Um, the vehicle was running and no parking brake. Um, but she got out to go put the uh, FedEx package in the box. Note as she got out and was getting to the sidewalk, noticed that uh, her uh, Ford Explorer started rolling in reverse. She went to go try and stop it. The door of the vehicle knocked her over, forced her legs 
uh, over her head and um, snapped her spinal cord. Uh, and she was a, a paraplegic uh, after that. And so we uh, represented this case. Jeff and I uh, tried this case along with Jed and uh, Rebecca Franklin Harris, who's not on with us. Um, but back then, Jed was a uh, was a very young, eager associate, and now he's an old, seasoned law partner. Um, but uh, but the the result of that case was uh, a compensatory verdict of nine million three hundred thousand, and then a punitive damages verdict of thirty million seven hundred thousand for a total result of forty million dollars against Ford Motor Company and Legacy Ford, uh, and ten percent of that was against Legacy Ford, forty percent. I'm sorry, 40, 90% was against Ford Motor Company. And the jury did uh, assess 20% fault to Jessica. And that's something that we want to talk about because uh, one of the big issues in a case like this where Ford was uh, spending so much of their time uh, blaming Jessica for what happened, we thought it was really important to uh, have Jessica take responsibility for her fault. Uh, and so she did that. And uh, as we'll talk about the jury, um, really uh, uh, found that Jessica was very credible. Uh, one of the reasons why is because she accepted fault for what she did. Um, so that's the basic overview of that case. Um, Jeff, where do you want to start on it? Well, thanks, Steve. That uh, recitation of facts is pretty much everything I remember about the case. <laughs> and you were reading that from something. I appreciate you not sharing that with me. That was uh, my own so. personal notes. <laughs> or, or, did you, or did you just do it from memory? It's no, all I'm from kidding. memory. I remember, the case very, I remember the case very, very clearly because Jessica was an uh, amazing person. This is an amazing person. And um, it was a hard fought case. Um, and, you know, it was one of those cases that uh, I feel like really uh, was one of the most important cases our firm has ever tried. And, and uh, we also, I hope, made a difference because this particular design is not used really anymore. You only find um, this defect in older vehicles and modern vehicles. You can't really do it. So it's, it's, and it's gratifying every now and then to try a case where you feel like you've made, made a difference in the world. And so it's the kind, right, where the, the shifter is like next to the steering wheel? Yeah, I actually have a, I have a new General Motors uh, vehicle and it has a column shifter, but, but all the new vehicles have an electronic transmission. And the way that this particular vehicle was designed is it had a mechanical transmission and there's a thing called the Prindle, which is the little part of the transmission that you can see when you look down towards the uh, dashboard and it's it's called prindle because part reverse neutral drive lower gears oh my god i never knew that even though i yeah, knew it was exactly. called <laughs> wow yeah there you go prindle prindle uh, okay. um, and so what you can what you can do and, and, the, and i did it the other day i actually thought about this case before i even knew we were going to be talking about it i was in my car and i just i don't even look at that thing anymore you just kind of you, you do it from muscle memory and you'll just sort of wave your arm and you can just feel when it's in park or when it's in reverse. And what's interesting about the new vehicles is they've designed them to where they feel like an old mechanical vehicle. You know, there's no reason why you would have that resistance in a true modern transmission, except they're designing them that way. But with the old mechanical ones, like the one that Jessica had, you can, because it was, you know, it's common for people to just do it without looking. You can actually, when you're popping it up and you think you put it in park, you can put it in this no man's land between park and reverse and it'll get caught there. 
and it can sit there for a period of time and then hydraulic back pressure builds up and it'll drop down into reverse, which is, which is the essence of the defect and what happened to her. Yeah. I think one of the things that, uh, you know, with these cases is, uh, always, uh, uh, one thing you got to think about, but uh, was whether or not we could actually get this vehicle to repeat being in between the park and reverse because it, you know, on first blush, it sounds like, well, how are you going to get it caught there? And if you look at the at the detent lever, the rooster comb, you know, it's got this sort of tall uh, peak in between park and reverse. Um, and it really comes down to this little spring that they have on there and how much pressure they put on that spring and and whether or not it's going to force it into park or reverse and not get stuck in the middle. Uh, but because of some of the testing that our expert did in that case, he was able to show, and we were able to re, uh, recreate it uh, out at the scene, um, that you could indeed put this vehicle in between park and reverse. Uh, and that, um, you know, uh, if, if you did that and you left it running, uh, then it will eventually move itself into uh, reverse from building up hydraulic fluid. Yeah, and he, he just re- referenced something called a rooster comb. And basically, there's a little gear inside the transmission that looks like the back of a rooster's neck, you know, the little comb part of the neck. And and the spring sits on top of these little points on the back of the rooster comb. And and that's what, he, what he was, Steve's talking about is this, if you if you put it into this false park, the spring will sit right on the top of the comb and it'll be in this place between park and reverse. And it's a simple fix. You just make a really strong spring that will not allow itself to sit on the top of this point where it's in um, false park. And the reason, not only Ford, but the reason that other automakers would argue that they didn't make stronger springs is because of customer convenience, you know, and, and we see this a lot in product cases and, and fortunately seen in cases where people have died have been injured the automaker will say well yeah we could have done it differently but it would be inconvenient for the customer to have to shift you know to have to move the lever and it would be harder to do you know we've seen that with like i, I remember a case with general motors years ago where we had there was a defective uh seat belt buckle that you could accidentally um hit with your elbow and it would release it and the reason that general motors designed it that way was they said well that women wouldn't want to have a seat belt buckle it was designed differently, excuse me, a seatbelt release knob that was designed differently because they might mess up their fingernails. Now, you know, I think most consumers would uh, take the trade-off between uh, dying or being maimed because your seatbelt comes undone or, you know, possibly messing up your fingernails. I don't know, Vaughn, what do you think about that? Um, I was just thinking about how I've been growing these like absolute claws <laughs> during quarantine. I don't know what about, I don't know what about it is making my nails grow longer, but I really can't relate cause I hate the feeling of long nails. So I don't know. Well, there you go. Well, I think one thing that Jeff just brought up, uh, about this case and, and, uh, you know, uh, Jeff and I, and everybody really learned a lot more about transmissions than we ever thought we were going to in, in trying this case. And we had, uh, uh, through our expert, spent uh, a lot of money uh, in recreating a whole bunch of transmissions from Ford. Uh, and so really, the uh, one of the fun parts of trial, and we'll talk about this some more, but one of the fun parts of trial was that in a later Lincoln, I think it was the Lincoln Navigator, um, they had actually uh, made a detent spring or this little spring that keeps it from getting, you know, puts it into park or reverse uh, that was, I think, rated at 15 pounds. And the one on the 2004 Ford Explorer was rated at six or seven pounds. And so our argument was, well, they should have just made it like the Lincoln 
And so at trial, we had all of these different, you know, uh, little model uh, transmissions. And so at trial, we would, you know, uh, make the defense experts, make the defense 30B6 corporate representatives uh, try and get the Lincoln stuck in between park and reverse uh, because they said you could do this to any transmission. Uh, they, of course, couldn't uh, in front of the jury, except one guy, one expert, I think, when Jeff was on cross, uh, put his foot up on the dashboard and, uh, oh, yeah, you know, and yeah. held it with both hands in order to try and get there. The other guy, the the uh, corporate representative, you know, picked up the, the the spring with his fingers and held it, you know, while he slowly placed it under there, which neither of those things could you ever do when you're actually driving a car. So it just it, it was great stuff in front of the jury because. Uh, everybody got a nice laugh out of watching them trying to get stuck in between. I I have a question about this. Yeah. Okay. Number one, when you are Shoot. like gonna do this at trial, are you like, is isn't any part of you worried that you're gonna be like, oh, show me, show me, and, that, and they'll just say no? A little yeah. bit. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. I mean, well, it's a five hundred thousand dollar bet, Yvonne, of your own money in the case. Like, why wouldn't you be a little bit concerned? <laughs> right. Well, if well, if you say that to the witness, you say, "Look, can you you know can you put this thing in false park?" And he says, "I'm not even going to try." Well, then you you've made your point, you know, that he's scared to do it because he knows that he might. Um, and then, of course, the other option is he doesn't, and he put you know, and and he, like Steve was saying, you know, he. To, to go through all these contorted maneuvers to try to, to refute us when he's doing all that in front of the jury is gold. But yeah, you know, anytime you do stuff like that, you're always, there's always but, money. So but of course, Yvonne, you know that we sit around late at night at the office <laughs> playing with all these models. And so between all of us had tried this ourselves uh, probably a couple hundred times. So we had a pretty good feeling they weren't going to be able to do it. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm more like... If they could do it on the spot in front of the jury, that would have been amazing. It's more, I wasn't thinking, but what if they could do it? I was thinking like, but I guess it makes sense. You've kind of backed them into a corner where no matter what they do, it's bad. But I would just, I would be afraid that I would say, well, show us. And that they'd come up with some sort of, especially the expert witnesses, that they'd come up with some sort of slick reason for why they couldn't do it. And then I'd right. be like, oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's what you do right in front of the jury. Darn it. Oh, shucks. <laughs> I guess we'll move on. <laughs> no, well, just whatever whatever they do, you just point at the witness and you go, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. <laughs> well, but, but I mean, but yeah. part, part of it, remember that the theory of our case, too, is that a vehicle should not be designed in a way which this can happen. So even if they did it with our alternative design, if it's an alternative design from a Ford vehicle, which this was, this was from a Navigator, it's like, why did you design that one that way too? It must be crappy too. So all of your, you know, we were just saying that, you know, the Ford had a better mousetrap on another vehicle, but if they were able to recreate it with that vehicle, you know, it really hasn't changed our theory because our theory is it should never happen. It should be a never event. Um, so, you know, you know, joking aside, even if it's something where they were able to recreate it on ours, you know, or excuse me, on our alternative design, then that's just another example of a defective design. You know, the the flip side of that is from our, our case, our case is obviously a much stronger case if we can show an alternative design that our very own defendant has put in into another vehicle. So, um, you know, that, that that's obviously a great fact for us when, you know, you can point and say, well, look, we're not asking you to go redesign the world or come up with some great new different technology. You actually had this technology available and oh, by the way, you used it into the 
vehicle that was very similar to the Explorer, but cost a few grand more, you know, the um, Navigator versus Explorer, or the, you know, higher end SUV models that they had. All right, Yvonne, this next company that we're talking about is literally a company that has been with our firm since the beginning. And I don't think we could survive with because every time we go to trial, we always have Bob or Liz or one of their other technicians who is helping us do our trial presentations. And I'm talking, of course, about legal technology services. And you can find them at ltsatlanta.com. Yes, they do all things visual. That's their big tagline. And it's definitely true. They have saved our bacon so many times and can help you out with so many more things uh, that you might even, you know, not even think about. I mean, they can help you with demonstratives for trial. They can help you with video depositions, day in the life videos, stuff for your website. Settlement videos, witness statements. I mean, literally it is anything technology based or as Yvonne already said, all things visual. They are huge at helping with the demonstratives that we put in front of the jury. They are friends of the firm and have just done tremendous work for us over the years. So pick up the phone or get on the computer and look up Bob, Melanie, or Liz at ltsatlanta.com. And you can also call them at 770-554-1633. That's Legal Technology Services at ltsatlanta.com. And Steve, don't forget, we have a gift for our listeners. Oh, yeah. I totally told you to remind me and I totally screwed it up. So, yeah. So what I forgot to tell our listeners is that um, if you mention the Great Trials podcast, when you call into legal technology services or write into them, uh, they will give you 10% off of your first job. So mention the podcast, Great Trials podcast, and uh, they will give you 10% off of your first job. And again, that is LTSAtlanta.com, Legal Technology Services. Uh, give them a try. Yeah, so I, I want to back up a little bit just to tell our listeners. So, you know, part of the theme of the case was that um, you, this, this was not a new problem to Ford. Uh, they had dealt with it about 30 years before, uh, and it had been an ongoing problem. And they, they had done a, a warning fix, I think, about 30 years before where they came out with a, with a sticker that they uh, had people put on there that, you know, basically said, don't get out of your car unless you make sure it's in park and you use your parking brake or something like, I don't remember exactly what it said. Um, but, the, and then of course we had um, uh, through cross-examination, through discovery had a number of uh, other similar incidents, but Ford's whole or a big part of Ford's case in this was basically saying, well, you know, Jessica just left this in reverse and she got out of a vehicle that was in reverse and basically she got out of a moving vehicle and did this to herself and we're real sorry that this happened to her but you know really it's all her fault and um and i wanted to make sure to talk to jeff and jed about this that, that one of the the early issues in the case and one of the big issues for ford was is that when 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 this all happened uh the police show up and they're recording everything on dash cam and uh they start talking to Jessica. She's she's pinned under the vehicle as they're talking to her. So basically, the Ford Explorer is sitting on top of her. Um, but the police officer basically comes up and and um, asks her what happened. And she made a couple of statements that at first we thought were very problematic. She said something like, uh, and I'm I'm reading from Ford's pretrial order, but it says something like, uh, um, 
I thought I put the vehicle or, or uh, I thought the vehicle was in park, but I obviously left it in reverse. And then she also made a statement that was something to the effect of basically as she was getting out of the vehicle, um, it went into reverse and she fell, meaning she didn't, you know, walk up to the, the curb and, you know, and then run back that it just happened as she was stepping out more likely that it's, uh, in reverse. Um, and so, so that was a big issue. And so I want to, I want to have Jeff and Jed talk about this, but, you know, Ford thought that was sort of their, uh, you know, their home run key right there at the beginning of the case was, well, she said it, she said she left the vehicle in reverse. Uh, and she said she got out of a moving vehicle and of course she can't do that. Um, so, so, uh, Jeff, why don't you talk about how we decided to address that? Well, there's, there's a couple of issues related to that. The, the first is, what the hell else is she going to say? Because what, so when you get into these cases, in this case, for example, Ford had 30 years of internal documents where they've got people complaining about the fact that they can put their vehicle in false part. And then they have all these other documents, which we'll probably talk about in a minute, called failure mode and effects analysis documents, which, which are essentially engineers looking at a product and saying, okay, what can go wrong with this? So there are all these internal documents where Ford knows that there's this thing called false park, but most people don't. I suspect people who are listening to this podcast had no idea that such a thing could happen in the world, that you could put it in false park. So your inclination is going to be, if this happens to you, to try to make it fit in what you understand the world to look like. And so you're going to think, well, I must have put it in reverse. I mean, that's, that's a natural human reaction and one that I think Jessica experienced. She gets out, she gets run over by her vehicle because it backs over her and she instinctively does what I think is very natural. She says, well, damn, it must be my fault. And, and that's okay because it kind of goes with our whole view of jury trials is, you, you know, you be honest with honest, be honest with the jury and explain that that's exactly what you would expect her to say if she doesn't know what Ford knows. And the the other way to really refute that, which is what we did in the case, was from a forensic standpoint, there's literally no way that Jessica could have ended up where she ended up if the vehicle was in reverse when she gets out of it. Because, and I'm not encouraging people to do this at home, but you know, um, if you if you if you put your car in reverse and open your door and put your foot on the brake, and then you lift your foot off the brake. Before your, before your toes clear the brake pedal, the vehicle will start to move because it, it, it just automatically moves. And where she's found, where her body gets pinned under the vehicle, there's no way that she could have gotten to that place if, in fact, the vehicle had been moving at the time that she takes her foot off the brake. So you, know, you put those two things together, the forensic uh, recreation of the accident or the reconstruction of the accident shows that it had to have been in park or there's nowhere she there's no way she gets to where she is and you couple that with the fact that there is this phenomenon that Ford is fully aware of and in fact they talk about it in their own documents about how dangerous it could be then then I think it's you know easy to uh, to uh, attack Ford's defense that it's all her fault for putting it in park which by the way that's what Ford always does they always blame always blame the plaintiff it's a, it's usually a combination of you know, the plaintiff is lying, which in fact, they, they argue that in this case, uh, you know, the whole, their whole argument in this case was this whole thing was fabricated by the lawyers. And there's, there's no way you can have faults park occur in the real world. And of course, 
we ended up having, what was it, Steve, like 750 other incidences where other people had had the exact same thing happen to them. So yeah, it was either 751 or 791. I just don't, I don't remember, but it was somewhere in that range. It was a lot. Yeah. I have a question about this. <laughs> um, thank you for raising your hand, Yvonne. Go ahead. Yeah. I our listeners can't see it. I'm raising my hand. I also want to make it clear to our listeners that these aren't fake questions. Uh, this predated my time at the firm. So these are yeah, real questions. And, and thanks for sending me these questions earlier today. I appreciate You're it. welcome. You're welcome. Um, but I don't, Steve, I know this is something you wanted to talk about at some point, so I don't want to throw us too far off track, but I am wondering what she had to accept responsibility for, because I feel like she shouldn't have had to accept responsibility for anything. Um, well, uh, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll say something first and then uh, Jeff and Jed jump in. But uh, first of all, uh, Ford, you know, was saying you should never get out of a vehicle that's left running, uh, uh, especially. Okay. <laughs> right. Calm down, calm down. There's more. Yeah. <laughs> there, there's a never get out of a vehicle left running without using the parking brake. Um, you know, and, and that that's in it's in the owner's manual. So, and, I, and I'll never forget. I think you're supposed to chalk the wheels too. Like right, so if, yeah, you get exactly. out, if you get out to drop a, a package in the mailbox, you're supposed to remove the key. This, and I'm not making this up. This is a yeah. literal, you're supposed to never leave the car running. You're supposed to remove the key from the ignition and you're supposed to apply the parking brake. Yeah. 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 So, and, and, and they, they had blown up, you know, one of the pages out of the owner's manual, which said this, and then, you know, of course we had fun because I think it was page like 351 out of the owner's manual. And we're like, okay, after you go through 300 pages, okay, there it is that you, uh, that you're supposed to do all this stuff. And by the way, you know, what, one thing I always thought was interesting is that every police officer who you depose in this case, all of them are trained and they all almost all of them drive Ford crown Vicks are trained that when they get out to make a stop, they leave their car running, they put it in park, and they don't use the emergency brake. And the reason is, is because they might have to jump back in and get moving quickly. So you actually can go online uh, on YouTube, and you'll see another uh, a number of uh, police officers who get out to go write a ticket or they stop somebody. And then because their dash cam's on, all of a sudden you see their vehicle rolling away from them, and you see the police officer chasing after their vehicle. And those are almost all Fords. Uh, so, you know, so that helped that. But, but that's why we, um, that's why we thought it, felt it was important for, for Jessica to accept some responsibility because, you know, she had got out of a vehicle, she left running, didn't use the, the parking brake. And even though, you know, we, I think we had a, a reasonable argument why you do that, um, you know, that, that is a mistake. Um, and so, you know, I, 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 I thought it actually came off very well. And, and she, um, you know, and she, and she was very honest about it, that she, that she made a mistake, but she was also very clear. She said, I'm willing to accept responsibility for this as long as Ford is willing to res accept responsibility for this, which I thought, uh, was really powerful. And of course, Ford was not willing to accept any responsibility. Um, yeah. And it's also on a related note, it's pretty rare that you have a situation where the jury apportions fault against the plaintiff in some amount and then hits the defendant with punitive damages. Right. right. Um, so that, that kind of tells you how much this whole concept of blame the victim resonated with the jury in this case. But it, I guess the other thing we need to talk about is the, the law makes sense. And, and essentially what's supposed to happen is if an automaker is aware of how people use their cars, 
and it's foreseeable to them how people are going to operate their vehicles on a day-to-day basis, then they the, the law basically says that they've got to exercise reasonable care to design the thing in such a way um, that it is consistent with how people use it. And so all of this kind of goes away if you just don't make a car that you can put in false park. I mean, it's just that simple. So you, there's no need to blame anybody. There's no need to warn anybody. You don't have to put anything on page 312 of the owner's manual that says, whatever you do, take the key out of the ignition and chalk the wheels and you know all that kind of stuff. Just design it where it won't do this. And, and that's really the heart of cases like this is if you've got an easy, simple, and what was, the, I don't even remember, Steve, it was, I, I think we, we did some pricing on it and the spring that you could not put in Vault Park would have cost like two cents more. Uh, well, the evidence we had, and uh, I only remember this because Jed uh, shared with us before some of the discussions with the uh, jurors, and this is how they apparently uh, uh, came up with their punitives, punitive damages verdict, was uh, apparently it was $3. Uh, well, okay, three cents, three dollars. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it was it was it was three dollars, and so there was some some you know uh, of how many vehicles were out there times three, uh, you know that type of uh, analysis. Um, and so, um, but I think I think that was the evidence, and I and I'm only I'm only remembering that because of the notes from the jurors. Well, good for her accepting responsibility. I don't know if I've made this clear, but I wouldn't. <laughs> well, so, so this is one thing. This is one thing that we've talked about in in some of our other. Uh, well, when when we talk about cases and some of the cases that our firm has done, but you know, early on with our firm, uh, that that, uh, that Jeff and and our old uh, law partner Darren were trying against Chrysler Daimler Chrysler, um, where a, a young girl had been uh, killed when she shifted her. Uh, she was in a vehicle that was being cleaned. She pulled it out of park and and. Uh, the vehicle starts rolling and she gets pinned. And so, of course, you know, we focus group that case and um, the focus group just killed the I mean, I, I that's a bad choice of words, but they, they were very critical of the mom for leaving her child, two year old child uh, in the vehicle unattended. Um, and she wasn't really unattended. I, I don't want to get into another case, but they but the her boyfriend was like 15 feet away. Uh, cleaning the car when it started to roll, uh, but we that we we focus group that case. I think two weeks before we were about to try it, the the jury was very critical of our client for not for for leaving her child unattended, and we're about to go to trial on our first case as a firm. Um, so we were we got real nervous um, that we were about to go uh, you know have this big first trial and go lose it. And, um, you know, until we, you know, basically decided that we were just going to have to have her accept responsibility. And we've done this in a number of cases. And, um, and it works uh, uh, really uh, well in closing argument. And, uh, and Jeff, why don't you talk about how you used, uh, you know, accepting responsibility in, in closing and with the, with the auto manufacturers? Well, yeah, before I jump into that, let me respond to Yvonne's point that, that she wouldn't accept responsibility. Well, that, that's fair. And, and no, I, I think that's, I think you're raising a good point because just think about juries. There's 12 people on the jury and, and there are going to be people on the jury who feel like you do, who, who say, well, I don't know why in the world she's accepting any responsibility. It's all Ford's fault. 
because they knew that this was a problem and they could fix it. So there are going to be people who agree with you. But then there are going to be other people on the jury who think that it's all her fault because she got out of a vehicle um, that um, that she didn't take the key out of the ignition, didn't put the emergency brake on. And so when they go back there and deliberate, it's about a conversation. It's about having people listen to each other's opinions about things. And so that's the reason why I think of, uh, accepting responsibility is so important because it it creates a situation where you can have a conversation uh, about a verdict that goes in favor of the plaintiff rather than a straight binary choice between it's all Ford's fault or it's all Jessica's fault. And I, and I really strongly believe that, that allowing a jury to allocate some measure of fault to a plaintiff is a release valve that works to the benefit of plaintiffs most of the time because people can say, all right, I see where you're coming from. Um, you know, the Avons of the jury can say, okay, I see where you're coming from. I'm willing to apportion 5% or 10% to the plaintiff. And the people who really wanted to blame everything on Jessica can say, well, you know, Avon, I see where you're coming from. Ford knew about this for years, which finally gets me around answering your question, Steve. Yeah, that's exactly how we handled it. Um, Ford knows about a defect in their product that exists for 20, 30, 40 years. They've got hundreds of complaints. Um, they make a decision to sell a product that, that takes years to make. And then you compare that to Jessica's choice, which is a split second decision to get out of a vehicle and mail a package. And, you know, that that's not only how we handled the closing and how the apportionment shook out and also how we handled the, the punitive damages argument, which is, you know, if you've got all this information, you've got a duty to share what you know with the world and to make your product safer. I think that answered your question. Yeah, yeah it went out. I'll, just add, I'll add on to it because one, one thing that, uh, you know, we've both done, everybody's done that, that works very effectively in closing argument uh, is that, at, you know, in Georgia, we get, first and first close and last close. Um, so we get to come back up and talk again. Um, so at the end of our close, we always tell the jury, look, we're willing to accept responsibility, whatever that is, 5%, 10%. Ask, you know, when the defendants are up here talking, when the defense lawyers up here talking, ask if they're willing to accept any responsibility. Are they willing to accept even 1%? And they never are. So then when you come back up in the last close, you say, okay, we gave them the chance to accept some responsibility and they're not willing to accept any. So now it's up to you. Um, so, you know, that, that's, uh, you know, one of the things where, uh, where I just think it's, it, it's effective when you're talking to a jury about um, uh, in, in building credibility for your client. And, and one thing that Jed shared with us before, before the, uh, the podcast was the notes uh, that had been gathered from some of the jurors, and several of them mentioned that 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 the fact that Jessica was willing to accept responsibility really resonated with them, uh, and that Ford wasn't. Go ahead, Jed. And, and and these were the notes from you know our interviews with jurors afterwards, not their contemporaneous <laughs> notes from trial. Which anyone who has had Ford cases will get the um, humor in that comment. So, which although it is true. So Yvonne, one thing I've learned in this business is that you can't go get a great trial verdict to be talked about on the Great Trials podcast unless you get the case in the first place. And that's why we're talking about digital law marketing 
www.digitallawmarketingbootcamp.com. That's Digital Law Marketing. They are a great company that does website design, SEO, social media marketing, content marketing, and everything you need to market your firm online. Yeah, I mean, think about it. The first time that you hear about whether it's a lawyer or a law firm or a business or a doctor, what do people do now? You look them up. You just, you, you Google them. And so your website has to look good. Your content has to be good. And that's what digital law marketing can help you with. Yeah. And they make sure that you can be found too, because you can have a great looking website, but people type into Google and you don't come up at all. They will help with that as well. And the thing that I really like about digital law marketing is that they don't go out and market for your competitors. So if you get them for your area, they won't go across the street and go advertise for a competitor or law firm. They also have such a fantastic team. They, when I made partner at the firm, they sent me flowers, which was so nice and such a personal touch. Um, they do our firm's website and for better or worse, it's very easy to find me in my headshot that I hate <laughs> right. because they're so good at what they do. Exactly. And, and you know, the thing, uh, another thing I like about them is they're, they're extremely responsive. As you said, like if you ask them to do something, they will get it done that day and they don't overpromise. They won't tell you things just because they think you want to hear it, which without mentioning names, I've heard from some other website marketing companies and digital law marketing will not do that. Yes, they're so, awesome. So call uh, Digital Law Marketing. You can call them at 877-916-0644 or you can look them up at digitallawmarketing.com. Again, that's digitallawmarketing.com. And tell them we sent you. So you mentioned, Steve, when you were talking about, you know, this idea of accepting responsibility, previous focus groups. Did y'all focus group this case? Did you focus group it more than once? What did you learn from it? I know we focus grouped it. I mean, it's, so this case was tried back in 2009. So it's hard to remember everything we did. I know we focus group it. And I, I specifically remember um, having Jessica and Kenneth both take the stand in front of uh, several other plaintiff lawyers who are friends of ours and just basically have them sit, at the, sit as a jury and have them critique them. And, uh, and that, and that was really effective for, um, for, you know, not only getting them prepared, but just getting them feeling comfortable of sitting in front of a jury and sitting in, you know, what it's like to sit in a, a you know, in a witness box and, uh, and, you know, and we try to do that, uh, especially with our, our bigger cases, try to do that every time where we, you know, get a courtroom or get, you know, get somebody who has a courtroom uh, and put them in there, let them feel what it's like, have people sit as a jury so they can kind of have an idea of what, what it's going to be like, because it can be a lot of pressure. Totally. Yeah. Um, so you don't remember if you focus group. I don't, I, uh, Jed, <laughs> do you remember if we, or Jeff, do you remember if we, fo I think I'm pretty sure we did. I just don't, I don't have a good memory of, of what, whether or not. Yeah, I, I, know, I know we did. I just don't remember. Uh, I, I, I don't remember the details of it. See, this is how you know that, I, that we don't talk about the questions beforehand. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, exactly. No, and, 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 and we don't like to send our questions out to anybody. We like to just have a conversation. Yeah. Um, but so, so Jeff mentioned one thing, and, and I, I wanted to make sure we talked about it, but it, it's this idea of the, um, of the safety analysis or, uh, you know, what's called the failure modes and effects analysis and, and what uh, a manufacturer is supposed to do with information like that. And, you know, and, and how that works with them getting complaints, uh, 
with um, uh, get, getting complaints from other users and then whether or not they're supposed to use that. Um, so, Jeff, do you want to talk about the FMEA and, and how we use that in this trial? Yeah, there's a concept when you're designing products that basically says that you're supposed to get feedback from consumers. And when you get feedback from consumers um, about how a product might fail out in the real world, you're supposed to plug that into this feedback loop where you design products in such a way that you address whatever's happening in the real world. It makes a lot of sense. So if you're selling cars, you know that people are, can be can put them in false park. You're supposed to you're supposed to address that failure in the field and figure out what you can do about it. And especially if it's a safety related issue, you're supposed to try your best to design it away. So there's there are these internal documents called failure mode effects analysis, and it's and they do them for for how people are going to use the product, but they also do them for you know how you're going to design it and how you're going to manufacture it. And the engineers are supposed to sit around and say, okay, um, and, and they, they also do that before they even sell the first one because you're supposed to think about how things might go wrong before you sell the first one. But when you sell the first one, you get feedback from people actually using it. You plug all that into this thing called the FMEA. FMEA. And we had these documents where there were a number of different Ford vehicles where engineers were recognizing that one potential failure mode was that you could put it in false park. And the effect of that failure would be that it could move unexpectedly. I think that was the exact wording of the document. Mm -hmm. And, and then they ranked it in terms of, okay, what's the severity level of if this failure mode occurs you know, what happens? And they put down, and in this case, there were documents that we had that they put that down as a 10. And this, it was a severity level 10, which means that somebody could get injured or killed. Yeah, it's the highest. The one, one right. through 10. Yeah. Right. And so, you know, that, that's, that was one of the huge parts of our case is that here is your own internal process that's recognized by you and other manufacturers. And you just ignored it. You know, you, you were... Not only did you have feedback from the field that people were doing this, but you also, your own internal analysis recognizes that this can happen and you didn't, and you didn't do what you needed to do to address it. The reason it was so important in this case is because the entire defense was that this was fabricated and it doesn't happen in the real world. So that Jessica was lying. She must have put it in reverse. And there's no way that in the real world you can actually put it in false part. Well, the problem with that is, then why the hell do you have these documents that say that not only do you recognize that that can happen, but people can get injured and killed? So that's how we used it. And, um, and we, had, we had some pretty good uh, expert witnesses who talked about it, talked about this process. Yeah, and, and I'll just add to that that uh, it not only, you know, it goes well with showing what they should have done, uh, you know, it, because it goes on once you figure out what the failure mode is, you figure out what the effect of that is. And that's what Jeff was talking about. Then you figure out, you do your analysis, how you can fix that, um, you know, and how you can make sure that this isn't going to happen. Um, but one of the things that they're supposed to consider in there is, uh, is what they call field reports, which are commonly known as complaints. So like somebody calls in and says, hey, I thought my vehicle was in park and it, you know, drove off in reverse. Well, that's a complaint. They should be considering that. Um, and so that's one, you know, one way that an engineer is supposed to use that. And, and uh, we deposed a number of their uh, engineers who had been on the FMEA because uh, every engineer has to sign off on it, who, who was a part of it. Um, and then 
um, you know, and then of course we did their corporate representative. Uh, but you know, all of them, you know, had to admit that yes, you're supposed to use these complaints and considering how how it can fail. And you know, and then um, um, one of the things that, that Jeff didn't mention is not only do you figure out the severity level, but you figure out the occurrence level. So how many times does this occur? And so so if it if you're getting a bunch of complaints. Obviously, the occurrence level goes up, so it's more likely to happen. What we found in this case and what one of our themes was is that all of these uh, complaints that were coming in to Ford uh, come in through uh, their Moors, uh, their master owner relations system. Um, and they and basically somebody would call in and, and say what I just said, that they you know thought they had it in park and would reverse. We had a whole bunch of these. And... And almost every single one of them had a big stamp on it to uh, basically route it to OGC. And so, of course, we're like, well, you know, what is OGC? And it's the Office of General Counsel. So all of these complaints about what, you know, was going wrong with their vehicles weren't going to the engineers who might be able to, you know, incorporate it into an FMEA, figure out a fix, figure out how this doesn't happen anymore. They were being sent to their Office of General Counsel they're lawyers. And so, of course, that was a big part of our uh, cross-examination of the engineers and of their corporate representative, which is, you know, if you got a problem in your vehicle, who's more likely going to be able to do something about it? Is it the lawyer or is it the engineer who actually designs the vehicle? And of course, they all had to say it was the engineer. And then, but, it, but all of these moors had these big stamps saying they were going to the OGC, um, which, uh, you know, just look terrible for um for ford because it is terrible um so related to that the um the and and the issue of complaints um can you guys talk about how the dealership factored into this it's it seemed like based on what i had read that that jessica had complained about weird stuff happening to the car or taking it into the dealership maybe yeah, I, uh, I'm going to let Jed talk about this because he really uh, helped a lot with the dealership claim. But I, I, I will mention, until I read our complaint uh, right before this, I had forgotten that there was <laughs> these issues of having it hard shifting to reverse uh, in, that there, in that she had actually taken it back to the deal. I would completely forgotten about that issue. But Jed, why don't you talk about the dealer claim here and how we were able to keep the dealer in the case and, and explain maybe explain why that's important in Georgia. Sure, sure. So one of the things, and you always have, you know, when you when you start off a case, there are some strategic decisions that you have to make about, you know, where you're filing the case, your potential venues, and what your theories are. Um, our particular dealer in this case um, had a venue um, in DeKalb County, Georgia, which is where we tried the case, and that was um, the location that we decided to to put this um, lawsuit in. Um, Georgia has a rather a cane principle that, that basically that. In order to maintain or keep your verdict, you have to uh, have the jury have a finding against your venue-based defendant. So um, in, in this situation, we could have gone to trial, and if the jury had awarded damages against Ford Motor Company, Inc., the manufacturer, but not awarded any fault to its dealer, which was Legacy Ford, um, we would have had the, the verdict would have been a nullity, and we would have had to go and... Uh, retry the case in uh, Ford's um, venue for a second time. So, you know, having the, that, that's kind of the law. Other states don't have that provision, or I know some states have the provision that if you 
get past summary judgment, then your venue's locked in Georgia and the laws change in Georgia's bounce back around about whether or not, you know, that, that portion of the law was, has been in effect. It's been reversed and then added back by the legislature. So the, the short answer is we knew we had to have a case in which we could hold legacy forward for at least some portion um, responsibility for the verdict. And if we could, then that would, you know, maintain and seal the verdict against the manufacturer as well, too. Um, so some things that work in our advantage in this situation is, for whatever reason, the, the, the defendants in this case decided to have the same set of lawyers um, defend legacy Ford and Ford Motor Company, um, you know, which, you know, was great for us from a plaintiff's perspective because we weren't having to deal with a dealership saying, hey, wait a minute, we're totally separate. Um, strategically, I'm sure for the defense, it was they thought it was an advantage because maybe a second set of lawyers just for the dealership would have said, wait a minute, we weren't being told everything that the manufacturer was. So there's a little bit of balancing back and forth for the strategic part of that decision. Um, the evidence, and we spent a lot of time developing it, that we had a you know, complaint that, that Jessica had made and, and, and documents um, that had uh, um, you know, showed that the vehicle had been taken into um, legacy Ford for certain issues related to the transmission, um, which was a good fact for us. Um, and, and, and the, the theory was essentially if you have the customer coming in making complaints about her transmission, they, they should have had a discussion with her uh, about, you know, certain aspects of it. Um, another part of the claim that we were able to get jury charges on and, and not, um, lose on summary judgment is you, you, in addition to negligence and, um, product liability claims here, you can have a breach of a warranty claim. Um, in this situation, um, the dealership was, uh, you know, claiming that, you know, due to the UCC ability to disclaim warranties that the paperwork in the purchase of the vehicle and, and the subsequent servicing of the vehicle basically said, you know, they were denying all, you know, warranties that could be denied under the UCC and, you know, Anybody that reads, you know, I mean, it's pretty standard in a lot of things. They have the denial of warranties. Um, the exception to a, a denial of a general warranty is if you have an express warranty that you're making. And one of the things that was interesting in this situation, for whatever reason, the dealership in the purchase of this um, had listed on the bill of sale a warranty fee. And it was it was a rather low amount compared to the um, total cost of the vehicle. But they really didn't have a good explanation for when they purchased the vehicle. Um, you know, what was this warranty that they were paying for? They were paying, I think it was $10, $15 or something for, you know, the warranty fee. And, you know, they tried to come up, but they cannot point to any documents that would explain that the warranty fee was, um, I forgot you know, what their explanation was, something related to, you know, some non-relevant portion to our case. But the problem is they didn't, they charged her for something and they didn't have any documents explaining what they were charging her for. So it at least created a factual question, um, you know, to our breach of warranty claim, which I think was a big part of, uh, you know, potentially having liability against the jurors. The jurors were charged, you know, that is unreasonable for a merchant, in this case, a dealership, um, to be selling a, a car that's not fit for its intended purposes, which was what, you know, we were claiming with a defective transmission. So, so basically like, the only time that it's been uh, a good thing when dealerships like attack attach all those fees at the end and like right. you're like I thought right. this was going to be so much less expensive, but it right. worked out. Right. <laughs> right. Well, it, it, 
And I will say, Jeff, correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I feel like that when we were facing summary judgment on this issue, we we uh, we 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 were a little nervous about the claim. We thought we might lose the warranty claim. And then I feel like it was like late one night that Jed comes running in after he had gone through like every single warranty document and found this fee in there. And it was like, this is how we're going to keep it in. And we're just like, oh, thank you for finding it, Jed. Yeah, I'm not- yeah I, I don't remember that. But now that I was just thinking to myself, how does he remember this? But I guess <laughs> now it makes sense if he if he was staying up all night pouring over documents and found this aha moment where he uh, finds his key document. Warranty laws all over the place, especially in Georgia. So I, I'm, I'm sure we were nervous about it because the case law is kind of really hard to decipher. Well, the briefing that we had on it, and I think it was even one that we were, you know, the the, the decision may have been punted and it was at the directed verdict stage. And I think that maybe they had argued at directed verdict, um, you know, after our evidence closed and, you know, we were coming back the next morning um, to address some more issues. And, and uh, the judge uh, wanted some, some more information on the, on the warranty claim. Yeah, I think he had maybe even expressed some um you know, wanting to better understand, you know, whether he should grant DB on it or not. And I think it, it was that evening that, that, that we had, you know, poured through some bill, bill of sale paperwork that we had, you know, maybe not addressed them much. But the, the fact is, I mean, there were documents that were in evidence, we could rely on them. And a big part of their argument that they made for why there should be a directed verdict was, you know, there had been no express warranties, you know, all warranties had been disclaimed. And that was, you know, what they had argued, you know, ad nauseum the, the night before on the directed verdict and plaintiff has no evidence of any express warranties. And then lo and behold, you know, they really had no good explanation for the fact that our client paid for, you know, a line item on their bill itself for a warranty. I have some recollection also that there was a question about whether or not they ever could produce the document that showed the back of the warranty yes. where they had disclaimed it. Yeah, I remember yeah, something. Yeah, 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 that's true too, yeah. Uh, Yvonne, tell our listeners what kind of lawyers we are. Oh man, we are, well, we're plaintiff's lawyers, we're trial. Yeah, we are plaintiff's lawyers and plaintiff's lawyers only get paid when what happens? When you get a good outcome for your client, either settlement or trial. That's right. When you close the case, as uh, as our friend Alec Baldwin says, always be closing. That's when you get paid. <laughs> and the best thing that can help you get paid is a good case management system. And so we are talking about CasePacer.com. That's CasePacer.com. It is a case management system that is cloud-based, designed by personal injury lawyers for personal injury law firms. Yeah, and Steve, one of the things that's really cool about it is that it's case-based pricing instead of the number of users. So the expense makes sense for the size of case and the complexity of the case that you have, but as many people as you need to can use it. Right, so if you're doing something like a mass tort litigation where you might have lawyers from all over the country helping out on it, all of them can access CasePacer without increasing the price of using it. It helps you move your cases forward. They have secure, anywhere, anytime access. And then what I thought was really cool is this discovery app that they have on their system. Yeah, for our lawyer listeners, you and your staff spend a lot of time dealing with your clients, getting information from them, getting documents from them. And Case Pacer has this app that will actually help you with intake and with getting documents from potential and current clients. 
Yeah, so it makes it really easy to handle, uh, especially a large number of cases. And it's cloud-based. I hear people say that all the time. I don't really know what it means. It just means that it's uh, some sort of uh, magic is going on out there, but it's based in the cloud. Cloud-based is good. You can get online or you can use the app to access your case management info from any time, anywhere. We encourage our listeners to check out CasePacer.com. You can also call them at 317-218-4715. That's CasePacer.com. And tell them that we sent you because this podcast runs on caffeine and help from our sponsors. Well, I, I wanted to make sure that it, uh, we talked about a couple of issues before we before we uh, uh, let this case go. But one, uh, Jed, I'm going to have you talk about it. Is um, So as we built these other similar incidents, um, you know, a number of the, uh, of the other incident evidence came in because of cross-examination of their corporate representatives, uh, which Jeff did a great job on in, in, in deposition of basically saying, you know, you've investigated 100 of these cases. This guy before you, I don't remember his name, but he had investigated like 500 of them. Uh, and he's, he said, yes, he's investigated like, you know, so we're like, so that's 600, you know, and that, and that was, um, you know, where we got 600 of our own size. And then I think we, we had actual documentation of uh, 150 or 190. I can't remember, uh, you know, uh, paper complaints. And so that's how we came up with this number of, uh, of, um, um, 791 or 751. But, um, but we were able to find a number of people who had actually complained about this and and uh, 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 Rebecca who's not with us today uh, went all over the country uh, deposing these uh, these other incident uh, witnesses and I, I think we had about four or five of them but Jed tell uh, tell everybody about how some of our other incident witnesses did at trial yeah absolutely and kind of to, to set it up kind of thematically what was uh you know, put together is that, you know, we, we had a case that was obviously very engineering um, intensive. You, you've heard the, the discussion that, that Jeff and Steve were having about the failure mode and effects analysis and, you know, earlier about how this transmission works, buzzword, rooster combs, Prindle, all this stuff, which is, you know, it's fascinating, but it, and it's, a, and it's at this essence, the core of the case, but we, we can't ever forget, you know, bringing, you know, and humanizing the case, both not only from what our client went through, but from what others had had gone through. So um, you, you're set with, and, and you know, we've got this big box of documents which we touted all over the courtroom, and I think there was some some comments even you know taking shots at us during our closing for you know we had this big box of you know other complaints. This is all happened to all these other pe- people, and at the end of the day, it was you know bankers boxes of complaints that had been received by Ford, but you know, again, trying to, you know, bring the humanity into it. Um, You know, we had gone through, you know, those documents and found certain individuals that had been identified and we wanted to talk to them. We wanted the jury to hear something more than, you know, just what had been written down on the internal um, Ford um, complaint database. Um, And and Rebecca found some just, you know, awesome people. Um, And I don't know how many people she probably talked to before she could you know, whittle it down to, you know, this group of five or six folks that she interviewed. Um, and, and she went and took depositions of them to, you know, to add, uh, you know, support for the case. And, you know, they, they were a cross section from, you know, blue collar working class to, you know, um, advanced degree professionals. And so each day we, during our, our case, you know, we had this technical evidence that had been produced and then or talked about engineering type stuff. 
And then we would bring in these, um, you know, usually through videotape depositions, um, the real life people that this had affected other than our client. Um, there's one that has kind of, uh, become at least infamous with, within, um, our firm, um, was an individual from, from, um, Cajun country in, in Louisiana. He was a shrimp boat captain. And Rebecca goes and, and, and does this deposition and, you know, comes back and talks to us and it's like, well, this guy was a character. And then he was, he was, you know, a natural storyteller, but, you know, he, he was very much, a you know, a lively personality. And, and, you know, so there's this discussion about, you know, do we use this witness or not just because of, you know, how he was, he was very combative with, with Ford and, and, you know, ultimately the decisions made, you know, we, we want to use him and he really becomes kind of a, 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 a star witness for us in the case. And, and he was, like I said, he's a gentleman, he, he operated a shrimp boat and it was, he tells this story, you know, we've got the great, you know, Cajun accent that it's the first day of shrimping season and he's taking his Ford Explorer and he's back in his boat, you know, down the, the ramp to get, you know, to, 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 you know, drop his boat off. He drops his boat off and he's coming out and he ends up, you know, according to him, you know, getting his car, putting in his park, walking back around to check something with the trailer hitch. And lo and behold, the, uh, the vehicle starts to roll back down at that point and rolls over him. Um, and, 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 you know, you know, just a colorful guy explaining that, 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 uh, uh, that what happened and, 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 you know, to him. And so the four lawyers cross-examining him during Rebecca's deposition and, and basically, you know, saying, well, well, sir, you know, you, you know, wouldn't you agree that you, you know, an equal possibility is that you never got your vehicle in park. You left it in reverse. And he looks at him and pauses and goes, are you kidding me? I drive a shrimp boat. I operate six gears at a time. I've got three engines on the back and you're telling me I'm not smart enough to put my damn car in park. <laughs> and, and then, humanly possible. Yeah. <laughs> and he, and then he, and he, yeah. You know, he's got the accent. And he's just like human. And then the lawyer starts to explain things. Well, you know, you could have done this. And he's like impossible. He goes, how do you get out of a car and park a moving vehicle and walk back to your trailer before it starts rolling? It's humanly impossible. And you know, the lawyer, you know, comes back with, 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 you know, more cross examining. And this is all stuff that like, this is the whole theme of our case. And, you know, he is just, you know, fighting with the Ford lawyer about everything that, that he's saying. And it's all stuff that, that you know, that we just embraced. And, and at one point um, he had actually made a claim against Ford. And so they want to bring that up that, well, you're biased because, you know, you made a claim against Ford after this happened to you. He was not seriously injured. And so they asked him, well, sir, don't you remember when, you know, Ford sent an, an engineer, you know, out and, and we tested your vehicle and you were there and you watched them and, and, and you know, it couldn't be um, recreated what you were saying happened. And he just looks at me and goes, yep, I remember when you guys rigged that test. Um, so, you know, <laughs> just, just, <laughs> you know, I mean, it was everything that was combative, but he, I mean, he was such a, you know, at the end of the day, you know, such a, you know, you know, great character of just, you know, humanizing the whole aspect of, of the scenes of our case. And, and it went to show, I mean, there were, you know, it, it was literally, you know, you could tell the jurors were amused, which, you know, playing videotape depositions, you know, it takes a lot for someone to do it, but it was just a very, you know, charismatic man that was, uh, you know, turned out to be great. And, and, uh, you know, but it was, you know, it was kind of one of those things, a strategic thing, because, you know, sometimes like, well, wait a minute, is this guy going to come across as too biased because he is fighting with Ford so much, but, you know, it turned out like, you know, talking to jurors afterwards, they loved him. Cause like, you know, look, here was this guy that was, you know, 
you know, fighting with the, uh, you know, the cross-examination, you know, every, every step of the way. So it worked out well. Yeah. And I, 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 I don't, I don't think Jeff had, I, I know I hadn't watched that deposition before we played it at trial. And uh, I'm pretty sure Jeff and I just said to Rebecca, you know, should we play it? Is this guy good? And she was a little worried. She's like, I don't, I'm not sure we should play it. And then when we, we played it, uh, I mean, it was obvious the jury just loved him and it was a great way to end that particular day. Uh, I, I, re- I remember it clearly. I, I had not seen it. I don't think you had either. And Jed and Rebecca had watched it and they both said, well, you know, there's some good and there's some bad, but we need to do it. And we were sitting on the back, sort of the back row of the courtroom because I think the judge had to leave early that day. So that was the last witness when we played the video deposition. And I remember you and I, Steve, talking, and I think either you said it or I said it. And one of the two chefs said, this is the best expletive deposition I've ever heard. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> and I remember looking, looking at Rebecca going, have y'all lost your mind? Why in the world would we not play this guy? He's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. I mean, yeah, I to this day, like, still, it's probably my favorite, uh, my favorite fact witness. Oh yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, I even still, I mean, just because it's like, it's so curious now, like, I remember like even parts of it now, I mean, you know, years and years later that, that you know, I think one part of the cross-examination was, you know, typical, look, you're being, because his incident had happened, you know, five or six years before he's deposed in our case. And, you know, that was like, well, wouldn't you agree that you don't remember the events now as much as you did back then? And they were trying to you know, impeach him on some like statement. He goes, oh, sir, I remember everything about that day. You ever been in Louisiana on first day of shrimping season? He's like, he's like, you want to get out there? You get out there on day one. It's just like going out there and scooping buckets of gold. That's what all the shrimp are. He's like, I remember every first day of shrimping season. So it's like, you know, all this stuff that you're just like, you know, a little bit, you know, crazy of a, of a man, but, uh, you know, I mean, it definitely was an impactful deposition for, you know, and the thing is purely, you know, give credit, Rebecca, I bet that deposition, you know, was probably 30 to 45 minutes, but it just goes to show, you know, you get the right witness telling the right story. It's not the length of, you know, what they're saying. It's, it's, you know, he had, you know, a real way of connecting with people, you know, through sound bites, And that, that's just, I'm, you know, I'm sure who he was when he, goes out to dinner and he's with his friends. He's the guy that everybody likes sitting around and listening to tell stories. And you know, that's what the, you know, the, the, only, the, the only thing that I've ever heard Jed quote more than that deposition <laughs> is the movie Dumb and Dumber, which he right. knows. <laughs> yeah. Line too. yeah, exactly. But, but literally, I mean, there, it, you know, a week doesn't go by where he doesn't quote either Dumb and Dumber or the deposition. <laughs> right. Is, those are his two favorite shows. Right. <laughs> I, I, I will I'll say, leave it at that. <laughs> I, I will say that one thing I did like from a from a it's trial a perspective, on the Bobby. <laughs> you know, from, from a trial perspective was uh, was every day at trial, and I don't, we didn't plan this out. It's just sort of the way that it, it worked out. Uh, and, and as the trial went on, we 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 started doing it more and more because we realized it it was very effective. But we would start the deposition or start the day every day with a engineer from Ford basically admitting how they hadn't um, followed their failure modes and effects analysis, um, weren't going to do anything about, uh, you know, all of these complaints they were getting. And one, one guy, we even asked him in his deposition, you know, after we went through a whole bunch of complaints with him and said, okay, now you've seen all these complaints, um, you know, are you going to go back to, uh, you know, Ford and go back to the uh, what it was called the critical concerns review group. Uh, you going to go back to them and tell them to do something about it. He was basically like, no, not no, my job, not my job. Yeah. yeah. He's like, I'm not doing anything about not it, which my is job. for, 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 you know, not only the case, but then for your punitive damages argument, that's uh that's just 
uh, great. So we would start every day with an engineer saying something along those lines and then end every day with an OSI witness, you know, basically telling what had happened to them. And it just made a, a good, uh, you know, sort of bookends on the day, uh, uh, you know, of how to start and finish each day with, with, you know, for doing something wrong and then, you know, some real person that this had affected. And uh, uh, the, the witness from Louisiana was, uh, he was fantastic. <laughs> I mean, I'd heard about him. I think I knew more about him than this case, actually, until today. So. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Um, one thing, you know, from a from a technical standpoint, one thing that was different about this case uh, in, in Georgia. Normally, you have to bifurcate between your liability and your punitive damages. So you go and you get your compensatory damages verdict first, uh, and then and then there's a question to the jury. Uh, um, you know, did Ford show conscious disregard? Uh, to the consequences or something along those lines. It's a punitive damages question. If they say yes to that, then you move on to a second phase, uh, which is punitive damages. And you and you know and you you'll explain that to the jury when you're doing jury selection. In this case, w- we didn't uh, bifurcate it, and and Ford w- had agreed to it, uh, which you know maybe should have been a, at the time we should have looked back and said, I wonder why they're not agreeing to it or why they are agreeing to it. But um, but I. I I remember the, there being a lot of talk around this issue, but you know the the fact that we didn't uh, bifurcate punitives, and uh, and I just thought that um, you know it, uh, from a a technical and legal perspective, especially for lawyers in Georgia, Jeff, you want to talk about the difference between um, how this case went, and I, I don't want to say it was a bad outcome. It obviously was a great outcome, but um, but um, you know the difference between trying it all in one phase as opposed to two phases. Yeah, there was a, a school of thought back then. The, the automakers would typically file a motion saying that um, that they either wanted to trifurcate it, which means you did liability and then damages and then another third page for punitive damages. <clears throat> there was a school of thought that, that it would benefit the plaintiff um, if you did everything together. And, you know, and that's the reason we did it at the time. We were like, well, it, because honestly, it's still to this day, I have difficulty and I, I suspect everybody does that uh, tries cases. I have difficulty explaining the concepts of different kinds of damages to juries because I'm not sure that they truly get, at least some of them don't get the difference between a compensatory damage award, which is supposed to try to address injury and a punitive damages award which is supposed to be completely different and address the conduct of the defendant and punish them for it it's those are concepts that are just difficult with different phases to get you know to frankly it's maybe a failure on my part but to to explain so so some lawyers and we were of that mind back then that put it all together let the jury consider everything in in with one award particularly when you're dealing with a a paraplegia case where the damages sort of by definition are going to be huge. Um, you know, we just thought tactically that that was the, the best strategy. And that, and that goes, that sort of explains how these things go. You know, we, we talk about this a lot and there is no right answer. Although I think there is now. Right. Yeah. I, was, I mean, there, there is no right, there was no right answer then. There clearly is now. Um, right. I think in retrospect, I think that was a mistake. I, I think, you know, we, we, we thought it through. We, we thought we were doing the right thing. We thought it made sense to, to have the case 
to have just one damages award where the jury was both awarding compensatories and punitives. It was also during a time, honestly, where there was a lot of movement in the law on punitive damages. Uh, and there was a, a lot, there was a lot, there were a lot of cases that talked about the relationship between the punitive damages award and the compensatory award and whether it was constitutional and all that was being sorted out when this case was tried. I think there's more clarity now, but uh, anyway, that's well, and for better I, or for worse. That was our thinking. I, I, I do remember also, I mean, this was 2009. So we had just gone through the bailout and the, uh, you know, bankruptcies of Chrysler and GM. I, I know that we were a little worried about, you know, uh, people feeling, you know, sorry for Ford or, or feeling like, you know, they pulled through without going to bankruptcy and maybe that, you know, that they, uh, you, you know, would be a little bit sympathetic to Ford. Um, so I know that was one of the considerations. Then of course, you know, if you put everything into one, uh, into one case, then you can, you know, put in all of your punitive damages evidence, which, you know, is not a whole lot more than what you put in your, in your uh, first phase, but, but would include other incidents that occur after, uh, after Jessica's incident, um, you know, to show that they, that this was still happening and they weren't doing anything about it and then put in things like the, the value of Ford and stuff like that. Yeah. The, uh, the other thing that's, that, that, that undergirds this conversation is, and the jury doesn't get to know this, but the punitive damages award, 75% of it in the products liability case goes to the state rather than to the plaintiff. And so if you're in a situation where you have a paraplegic and, and obviously those damages are huge, um, a, a massive punitive damages award doesn't really benefit the paraplegic that much. I mean, the lawyer gets to go around and beat their chest and say, I got a bazillion dollar verdict and the state gets to get a big chunk of it, but it's not really helping your client that much. So those are issues you got to grapple with when you're trying to decide whether you're going to agree to, to consolidating the award. And I know that that came up too. And we thought about this case and um, the fact that, you know, she, she had a lot of future medical care. Yeah. 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 We haven't talked much about the damages side of the case. Um, and I know we've been going for a while, but I was curious, you know, one of the things that we, Steve, we usually ask our guests, especially when you've got somebody who's been catastrophically injured is, how did you handle the trial with them? Did the jury meet them? Did the, you know, what did you do with damages? I know it's been a while, but, you know, was Jessica there the whole time? Was she there just for one day or what, what did y'all do? If, if I remember right, Jessica was in the courtroom every day. Um, and, and Kenneth was there too. Um, I should say that uh, the, the verdict, um, 1.3 million of that was a loss of consortium claim for Kenneth. Uh, you, you know, which is essentially, you know, the care in uh, loss of companionship that, that he suffered from from uh, losing losing those services from his wife. Um, so, so she was there. Um, yeah, you know, and, and looking back, I think that maybe putting everything into one case might have had the jury confuse themselves a little bit between uh, compensatory and punitive damages. Because I, I agree, I'm never going to complain about a forty million dollar verdict. But you know their uh, their their total compensatory verdict was nine point three million, with a, a punitive damages verdict of thirty point seven. Um, I think that if we had uh, if we had bifurcated it, I think they would have focused more on the, you know the the pain and suffering that she had gone through, and probably that verdict would have been high. The the compensatory verdict would have been higher. Well, because uh, wasn't the compensatory verdict just the almost 
the amount of her life care plan? Yes. Pretty close. Okay. I, I don't remember the exact life care plan, but it was it was right around the, it was right around that number. Um, I think that's where a lot of the confusion can happen is because if they hear if the jury hears the word compensatory, then what most people think about is like you're reimbursing someone for right. medical expenses or whatever. So I think a lot of people think of pain and suffering damages as punitive. Um, I, I think just because they're more um, abstract for less, less um, you know, for lack of a better word. Right, right. Um, I, I, I do think one, one thing that I, uh, one of my favorite stories, and I, I'll give this one to Jed again, is uh, you want to tell him, Jed, about when uh, they were cross-examining our life care planner? Sure. Um, so, so, you know, we, we've generally taken the position, you know, when you're, we're putting up life care planners, this is the witness that's, that's talking about the, the future medical needs for, you know, a catastrophically injured person. Um, you know, we don't overreach. Um, you know, we want them to, you know, the worst thing that can happen is, you know, they start cross-examining on the life care plan and they, you know, knock out some relatively small or trivial amount within that plan. And then the whole plan becomes, you know, suspect. And, and most of the times when you're dealing with a, a paraplegic, a quadriplegic, someone with a massive brain injury, um, the majority of your life care plan is, is going to be um, wrapped up in the, uh, the, you know, if there's, you know, future home health care that's needed, you know, future, you know, round the clock care, assisting, you know, those types of things. And, that, and that's always going to be a, a, a big, you know, the majority of the chunk. So, you know, I've seen life care plans that, that have, you know, had some things in there that it's, you know, it's just not worth the fight over to get a couple extra hundred bucks or a couple thousand bucks, you know, when you're talking about a life care plan that's running into the millions of dollars. Um, so, you know, to start with, we, we always tell our life care planners, we want, we want a conservative plan that, that, you know, really addresses the high points. And, you know, I don't need, you know, bottles of toothpaste because the argument is, you know, someone needs a different kind of toothpaste because their medical condition, look, we're all going to use toothpaste for the rest of our lives. So that's kind of the, 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 the starting point I, you know, that we had a, what I would consider a very conservative life care plan and then um, put up the life care planner. You know, she talks about the medical needs. She goes through it and sits down and um, the, the, the cross-examination of her was to start nitpicking on the edges of, of certain things that she included in our plan or in her plan, you know, for, for Jessica. And, and there was, you know, I don't remember the exact details of it, but, you know, it was like a classic example of, you know, sometimes when you're cross-examining someone, and, and I won't tell that it hasn't happened to me, but if you're talking to cross-examining someone with a, that's got a professional experience and lives with it, you better damn sure know, you know, the underlying, you know, issues that are involved. In, in other words, you know, cross-examine on bias, cross-examine on, you know, any number of things, but don't wade into the science with a scientist because they're, you know, oftentimes going to beat you. Um, and, and that was kind of a classic mistake that was made here. And it was like, well, you know, wouldn't you, the cross-examination, wouldn't you agree that, you know, you, uh, overestimated, you know, some aspect of the plan? I don't remember the details. But, I remember it, it was the, uh, the, uh, LPN care, the, the, uh, round the clock, uh, licensed practical nursing care, which is, uh, an LPN. I can't remember what they're paid, but it's like something like $10 an hour or something. It's, it's very low. Mm -hmm. 
And, and so, I, go ahead, Jed. Yeah. Well, then you can figure out because I think the, the, the turnaround flip response is the last year fans like, you know what? You're, you're exactly right. I, I probably did miss that. And, you know, the actual thing that would, would, should be required for a paraplegic under the Medicare, Medicaid standards or whatever standards it was, you know, would have been LN care and not LPN care. So, R- you know, RN you, care. Yeah. yeah, RN instead of LPN. So you're right. Instead of a 10 to $12 an hour professional, it should have been, you know, a, a 25 or $35 an hour. And he, he starts trying to, to wait out from his question now. He's like, all right, now she's starting to fight me. And she's like, no, no, wait a minute. I need to revise my plan. My, my plan is underestimating the amount of care that's needed for Jessica. Um, and she starts going through it. And, you know, he keeps trying to go back. You know, you, you, you tried to put in, you know, eight hours a day. Or I don't even think it was that much. It was like, you know, three hours, three hours a day, 20 hours a week. And she's like, no, I'm not changing the number of hours. But it needs to be a different person that's charging three times as much. You know, my, my plan's underestimating the care. And just, it was, you know. It, yeah, basically, after his cross-examination, uh, the life care plan had added about $2 million. To it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then he, and basically, he sat down and said, uh, you know, no more, no more questions for you. Yeah. And I, um, think, and I think my like, he's also the same guy who cross-examined the, uh, the, the, <laughs> the guy from Louisiana. Captain. That's right. <laughs> oh, <laughs> some, some of our best work was done by him in this case. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, all right. Well, I think uh, anything else uh, that we need to talk about about this case, Jeff? Do you want to tell uh, anybody about how you had to tell me to sit down during a cross-examination? No, anybody who's listened to your podcast will understand. That <laughs> ouch, ouch. Sick <laughs> <laughs> um, burn. I will, yeah, th- I will say that, that, that uh, you know, one of the things that, uh, that happened in this trial um, was they had this uh, expert from a, a company called Exponent. Um, and if anybody who's ever uh, been up against Exponent as an expert witness knows that this is a massive billion dollar company that makes billions of dollars from companies like Ford Motor Company, uh, you know, defending their, their, their products. Uh, and, um, you know, and so they had basically told the jury that, uh, that, um, uh, you know, how great this guy was and, and he was going to be the home run hitter. He was their last witness that was going to really just tie everything together. Um, and, uh, and I'll just make a couple of points about, about him, one is he, he made the mistake of basically saying that that uh, considering complaints in the FMEA uh, was irrelevant, and so of course that allowed a whole line of cross examination out, out of saying you know seven hundred and fifty one people or seven hundred ninety one people uh, are irrelevant. Is that what you're saying? And you know of course he he had to back off of that. Um, the other the other part of it was is that we had gone onto Exponent's website. I think Jed actually found it. Um, we had gone onto Exponent's website, and as part of their their uh, advertising, in order to get cases, they had a page on Park to Reverse, and in, the, in on that page of Park to Reverse, it said it, it said, uh, you know, one theory of uh, why a Park to Reverse happens is because is that you know, as plaintiffs will say, that they put it in the park or it's in between park and reverse and then it'll slip back into reverse and then they say but we you know have found a human factors analysis of it that really all of these people are just leaving it in reverse and and so this was on their page so we of course jed and i think what jed found that you know we were like you know all right save that page uh so on my cross you know one of the first things we uh 
we mentioned was, you know, you guys have already made up your mind about these cases. You, you, before you even, you know, got this case, before you even touched the file, before you knew anything about Jessica Monday, you already decided that she just left it in reverse. And he, of course, says, no, of course we didn't do it. And we said, well, here's what your website says. Uh, and so the jury, and I know I, I was reading in those notes, the jury really noted that, that fact that, uh, that, that how bad that looked, that, that uh, they had already had that on their website of that people just leave their vehicles in reverse and they, they don't do that. And then, um, and then, uh, and then during my cross examination, I might have tried to go a little too far on a couple of points. Yeah. When when Jeff, yeah, Barry- no, you, you had you had you had you had totally killed the guy. He, he was totally crushed. And Steve had the FMEA manual on his hand, and he, he he wanted to hold the manual up and get. He kept saying to him, "So you're saying this manual is is uh, irrelevant?" I think that's what you were saying, something along those lines, like or. And he just wanted the guy to, to say yes so he could throw the manual in the garbage can in front of the jury. And the witness was just wouldn't do it. He just kept saying, I'm not saying it's, I'm not saying it's irrelevant. So he's like, so you're saying it's basically irrelevant. <laughs> I mean, it was – so he'd already killed the guy, but he was not going to let him have that final death blow. Yeah, <laughs> it would have been, been like a TV. You well, know, I, you can't handle the truth. Kind of yeah. Well, no, and, you, and I'll tell you exactly why I wanted to drop it in the trash can <laughs> was because uh, I, I remember the story about uh, who's now a federal uh, yeah, judge, yeah, uh, yeah. Steve Jones. Steve Jones. Yeah, yeah. When he was a when he was a prosecutor, he uh, he basically said, you know, if, if this guy's not guilty, then this code doesn't matter, and he you know throws it across the courtroom into the trash can swish. You know, I was like, oh, well, it's like Judge Jones. Yeah, there's, only, there's only one difference. So Steve did that in closing argument where he was right. controlling the, uh, the environment. And, you, and you're trying to do it on cross. And get, you just wanted the guy to be like, it's totally irrelevant. And then you throw it in the garbage can. But anyway, yeah. I, I may have, after so, your fifth or so sixth attempt to get you, it. You, uh, were, you were well, playing I, with your food at that point. Well, at that, at the, yeah, exactly. <laughs> at, at that point, I very casually walked over to Jeff and just leaned down and I said, uh, I said, Jeff, uh, any other questions? And he, he very nicely whispers to me, uh, Steve, sit the F down. <laughs> <laughs> and I just look up and I'm like, I don't think I have anything further. <laughs> it, it was solid advice. <laughs> it, was, it was solid advice then and it's solid advice now. <laughs> <laughs> so let that be a lesson. Sometimes you go too far. <laughs> it's, only, it's only because I love you. Yeah, that's right. Um, so before we wrap up, is this um, the case where Jed was working so hard that he um, overslept and and like uh, had the voir dire outline and was late? I think that was a different case. Different, different story. Different <laughs> yeah, story. yeah, we'll save that one for some other time. Uh, uh, Hardworking, slept through an alarm, till yeah. going. Is this being recorded? Yeah. <laughs> is this thing on? I mean, uh, we won't talk about the times that Jed has to, you know, tie his tie as he's walking into the courtroom. But, uh, <laughs> it was, Jed's, uh, very, it Jed's was, very punctual. It's just because he works so hard. That's right. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> it was a, uh, it was a great, it was a great result for a wonderful, wonderful um, client, and uh, and it was fun to try with uh, with my partners and my current wife. I don't know how fun it was for her, but, uh, <laughs> but it, was a, it was a great, it was a great experience. And uh, we're just glad we had the opportunity to do it. And it was also against our, probably one of our least favorite defendants. So. Yeah, we've, we've definitely had a number of cases against uh, Ford Motor Company and uh, know them quite well. And they, I'm sure they, they feel similarly about us. 
All right. Anything else about this uh, about this case, Monday versus Ford Motor Company? I, I don't have anything I, further. I couldn't tell if Jed was saying something. He looked like he was mouthing something. Uh, Just going to say... Steve, shut the F up and let's go home. <laughs> yeah, that's, okay. right. that's right. <laughs> well, let me just wow. remind everybody that we that uh, we have been talking about the case of Monday versus Ford Motor Company. Uh, it was tried in 2009 in DeKalb County and resulted in a uh, $40 million verdict on behalf of Jessica and Kenneth Mundy. Uh, and we have been talking to uh, uh, Devon and my uh, law partners, Jeff Harris and Jed Manton. And if you want to look up Jeff or Jed, uh, you can look them up at hlmlawfirm.com. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Thank you all. Take care. Bye-bye. Be safe. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, have you reached a verdict? Thank you for listening to the Great Trials Podcast. You can visit us online at greattrialspodcast.com. We realize in the show that sometimes we use terminology that not everybody would be familiar with or that uh, we haven't uh, always explained every part of the jury trial process. So we've done two special shows, one on legal terminology, and Yvonne, that's going to be hopefully not that boring. Uh, We've uh, included a number of people in that so that uh, we can make that more entertaining and a show on the jury trial process. And we've also put uh, links to uh, those episodes on our greattrialspodcast.com, as well as a uh, glossary of the legal terminology on the uh, website. Yeah, so check those out. If you have a trial you would like to be featured on the Great Trials Podcast, or if you're a trial lawyer and you want to be on the show, or if you're just a person who has something that you want to say to us, please email us at info at greattrialspodcast.com. Note if you have something mean to say, we don't have email. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> we only need a positive commentary. Yeah, we're fragile. Yeah. Um, you can also rate or review us uh, wherever you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever. Again, if you have something mean to say, um, our podcast is not available for review. We, we also want to thank uh, the people behind the scenes. Uh, one is Taras Misher, who is our uh, uh, podcast extraordinaire. Uh, he is from Podcast on the Go. And Allison Hirsch uh, from Capricorn Communications. She is a magician when it comes to putting these shows together and getting them scheduled. And this has been the Great Trials Podcast, and we appreciate your time and hope you'll listen again. Thank you for listening.